are entering the Freedom Hut. The shutdown approaches. Looks like there might actually be a last stand to get that border wall. After all, we'll go into the latest from the White House and also an update to the story of the seven-year-old girl who died at our southern border last week. The facts aren't what the Democrats seem to think they were. And finally, Sean Parnell will join to talk about a Green Beret who faces a possible death penalty for killing the enemy. That and more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Whenever I hear a president say to the American people, at Christmas time, I am going to shut down your government. It pains me because I know that that's going to make a bad Christmas for a lot of people. And I would say to, to the president, there are a lot of people who have worked hard and all they want to do is live their lives. What is the president's plan and will he shut it down to get this five billion in border wall funding? We're going to do whatever is necessary to build the border wall to stop this ongoing crisis of illegal immigration. And that means this is a down? this is a very if it comes to it. Absolutely. This is a very fundamental issue. At stake is the question of whether or not the United States remains a sovereign country, whether or not we can establish and enforce rules for entrance into our country. The Democrat Party is a simple choice. They can either choose to fight for America's working class or to promote illegal immigration. You can't do both. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. It looks like... There might be a shutdown after all, folks. I'm a little surprised. Got to be honest with you, I did not think that we would be here. But it looks like the Republicans may have found some backbone after all. Although, I might be speaking too soon. But notice how this turns into a a battle of narratives. This turns into who can make the best appeal to the public. And, And you really had a pretty good overview there courtesy of elijah cummings and stephen miller the president's white house aide and policy czar of sorts on immigration specifically the left the pelosiites the the shumerians i like that the ancient shumerians the babylonians uh, they view this as just an opportunity to say that trump is reckless that shutting this down before christmas is heartless that trump is the grinch that if, in fact, there is a shutdown, and by the way, I, I hope there is. I am, I am rooting for a shutdown because this is a fight we need to have. We need to see what the American people really think when presented with this choice. But on the left, the Democrats offer up, well, pretty much what you would expect them to. They give you, oh, it's so cruel and heartless for the government employees that aren't going to have their paycheck. Oh, it's terrible for people that are expecting to you know spend time at the grand canyon facilities that are run by the national park service you know and so on and so forth and yeah there there will be costs at least in the short term to a shutdown there'll be some inconveniences but that's to be expected there's a trade-off going on here so on the one hand you have the the fear of 80% or so of the government still operating exactly as it is. 20% of our federal government. You know, keep in mind, there were whole departments 
of the federal government that did not exist in living memory. I mean, entire agencies that weren't even there. But we're supposed to believe that if 80% of the government continues on, uh, that what's what's left out of that equation is going to make it into dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria for the rest of us. I'm sorry, I, I just, I don't buy it. And I know you don't buy it either. There have been, uh, I think about a dozen or so shutdowns in the past. We're all fine. We're still here. We don't live in some Mad Max dystopia, right? We're not all just running to our nearest neighbor that has plenty of storable food, ammunition, and tactical training. Although, it's always good that I speak to you, team, because I feel like this radio audience, if things ever did get really bad, you know, if the zombie apocalypse apocalypse came, I just put out the buck signal to Team Buck. I know I'd be fine. You guys would have me covered. But... Nothing terrible is going to happen if the government shuts down. It will all be okay, but it will force a discussion. It will force a debate in front of the American people, just like the one that Trump tried to have with Pelosi and Schumer last week, where we get to hear what do the two sides think about this? What do they want? And I already told you the Democrats have. They're going to focus on, oh, it's the shutdown. It's heartless. Government employees will get back pay. Congress has always made sure that even if you're one of those furloughed, uh, furloughed federal employees, that you get the pay that you were going to get for that time period. And that wouldn't change here. And nobody would want that to change here. You know, they're showing up in good faith to do their jobs. They shouldn't not have a job to do because of Congress being unable to do its job. But that said, look at the other side of the equation for a moment. Do we really think the status quo is sustainable? Because the status quo is the border keeps getting worse. Loopholes are exploited. Illegal immigration continues. Illegal immigration surges. Drugs are are pouring into this country. They're killing over 70,000 of our fellow Americans. We have crime spiking. We have public services strained. We have all these things tied to either illegal immigration or the cartels or a combination thereof. You'll notice how the media really goes to great lengths to speak about illegal immigration as though it is not at our southern border directly tied to the cartels. Meanwhile, the truth is that the cartels have broken up our border into plazas, regions. And those plazas aren't just for drug smuggling, they're for human smuggling too. And when we talk about coyotes, we might want to start thinking about coyotes in terms of employees of drug cartels. As in cartel members people that are associated with the cartels. And I'm sure they don't just smuggle human beings either. They're smuggling all kinds of stuff. That's what's on the other side of this. And, and then you look at the long-term reality here and what happens to a country that has overwhelmed by the fecklessness of its leadership, the processes of assimilation that are in place. What happens to a country that has rapid change of its demographics with people coming into the country who their first their first act on U.S. soil is illegal. Their very presence here, their, their, their very first moment in America is a statement of their willingness to break U.S. law and then come here and are told by the left and Democrat activists and our own media that they are owed this. Remember that activist that I interviewed on the street last week? They're owed this because of U.S. foreign policy. They're owed this because of colonialism, because of white privilege. Whatever the 
left-wing explanation is. And we also have a Democrat party that's increasingly trying to enlarge the welfare state as it is. And yet they won't privilege the interests of America's poor first. For the Democrats, a mouth to feed is a mouth to feed. They don't care if it's an American mouth or a foreigner who's come into this country and is getting access to what is turning into the largest soup kitchen in the world, the U.S. of A. These are very, and and then we can talk about the labor market and, and the labor pool and what this does to those who are trying to work their way up or trying to get into the middle class who, who want some sense of economic and professional security and want to be rewarded for a hard day's labor. Turns out if you dump countless, endless amounts of low-wage, non-English speaking workers on the economy, it has a negative impact on those who were not fortunate enough to come from a background where they're likely to go to college, where they're likely even necessarily to finish high school. And this used to be gospel on the left. I'm, I'm, they, they try to say this is alt-right, this is racism, to talk about a secure border is somehow evil, even though Obama used to talk about a secure border. Obama says, don't come here and bring your children. Now, he was saying it because that's where the American people were, and he wasn't going to win that argument. The left, his left-wing base, did not agree with him on that. But they don't have an honest discussion on this issue. They don't have the willingness to debate these principles, these points as they are. It's always emotional manipulation. It's always demagoguery and emotional and psychological blackmail by screaming that everyone else is racist, by pretending that the only moral and decent point of view is to operate in a state of de facto open borders, to pretend there is no downside, only upside, no cost, only benefits. And we've all had enough. The wall will be helpful, but the wall is not everything. It's also it's not the only thing. It's also symbolic of a willingness to do something about this issue, to take action, substantive, meaningful action. It might move the entire conversation about immigration. It's not just we'll have a barrier that will assist Border Patrol sector by sector, mile by mile. That's how this has to be done. Maybe there's some areas where you need very little, if any, physical construction because it's inhospitable terrain, there's no access roads, and Border Patrol's got it covered. But there are other places where clearly, like San Diego, where there is a border fence, it helps. It works. But not only would that prove that we have been lied to by the elites, by the media, by the Democrat Party on this whole concept of a wall, it would show that we don't have to just continue to suffer under this lawlessness covered up with dishonesty all the time. That we don't have to accept this as the status quo of the border. That's what the wall would do. And it would be a progression. It would take time. It would get stronger and better. The wall would get better, but our conversation around immigration would too. And once we have a firm grasp on our southern border. Once we don't have 70,000 one month, 100,000 another month, 50,000 another month pouring into the country with the full expectation they're going to be allowed into the country because of this loophole about asylum. Once we have that under control, then we can say, okay, what do we really do now? What do we do now about the illegals that are already in the country? But you can't even have that discussion until you have a secure border. You can't even look at what comes next and 
by the way, there would have to be deportations. Not necessarily of everybody who's in the country legally, but there would certainly have to be a a review process in detail, in depth, of who are these individuals, how long have they been here, can they prove it, have they been productive, do we make them leave the country, reapply, and then come back? I mean, what? that's all a serious conversation. You can't even have that conversation until the southern border is secure. Can't do it. It's nonsense. Democrats know this, which is why they are desperate. I mean, they are hell-bent on preventing the border from being secured. I mean, it is their preference that this continue on. They can't say that, but that's what, and that's why the shutdown fight is so important. People need to see the Democrats for who they really are on this issue. They can't allow the media to run cover for them. They can't, just look at the caravan, all the lies that were told about the caravan. Oh, there's no criminals. Oh, they'll never get to the border. Oh, it's all fear-mongering. Lie, 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 lie. Lies everywhere. From the biggest networks in the country, with one exception, lies. Did they change any of their behavior? Was there any introspection? Was there any reflection from the mainstream media afterward? No, of course not. Because they have an agenda and they are executing on that agenda when they silence people by calling them racist, when they claim that a secure border is somehow the, 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 the wish only of the alt-right or, or of nationalists in this country. Meanwhile, it was a bipartisan, expressed through legislation, bipartisan desire just a few years back. What has changed? Well, what's changed is the Democrats have become a party on social issues of people who are anti-science and and, and just delusional. On the economy, they can't do math. They think that socialism is going to solve things and, and make things cheaper and better. They don't know history either. And on the border, what they realize is that this is the way that they can overcome all of their other structural political deficiencies. Keep this issue going. Use it to mobilize the Latino base in America. Use this to create whole new generations of Democrat voters. And in the process, we're paying the bills in every conceivable way. All right, team, we got a lot more. I've uh, got a show today that's going to cover a lot of ground, including this this Green Beret who's facing a, a death penalty charge for killing a Taliban bomb maker. We'll get into that. We'll have uh, my friend Sean Parnell, former Army Ranger, joining to talk about it. I've also got some of the Sanctacomi testimony today on Capitol Hill. Man, that guy's a... Uh, he's a... He's a clown. Uh, and and then we have more on this on this issue at the border coming up, so... A, oh, and of course, Flynn and the firing of, I'm sorry, the uh, the charges rather against some of Flynn's former business partners, General Flynn. So stack show. We've got more coming. Stay with me. Sorry to spoil the surprise, but if you're getting gift from me this Christmas, you're getting coffee from my favorite coffee company, Black Rifle Coffee. Every morning when I go into the hill, I have a steamy, hot, delicious cup of Black Rifle, just black. And that's also how I drink it and the name of the coffee, by the way. It is delicious, okay? The aromas, the different taste profiles that come through are incredible. Oh, and by the way, this is a company run by and for veterans, including veterans of the United States Special Forces. These guys are amazing. 
Black Rifle's Coffee Club makes things so easy. Just pick your blend, the amount you want, and they'll ship the coffee right to your door. Check this out for yourself. They offer three, six, and 12-month prepaid and pay-as-you-go subscriptions. The best-tasting, most energizing coffee imaginable, and they help veteran and first responder causes. Black Rifle Coffee is the gift that keeps on giving. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 15% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Consistently, the, the FBI has had legal counsel there to try to uh, uh, discourage uh, the answering of, of certain questions uh, that might be good for the American people to know, uh, and yet uh, oftentimes uh, they will suggest that it's part of an ongoing uh, investigation and, and discourage uh, the witnesses from testifying. He has a huge advantage. He has the clock. Uh, the administration, mm. uh, if you will, always has the clock, and in this case, the clock is running out. So what would normally be 245, I don't remember, 245 demands to, this, uh, to the Department of Justice to provide at least some of the information that he says he doesn't remember, uh, there's no time for that. And this Department of Justice, under no real management, continues to withhold information and even cause him to withhold information on those occasions in which he knew something. Comey was given round two today of Comey Palooza 2018, which is like going to a rock concert where there's no music and they only serve fruit juice. Uh, but not even vaping allowed at Comey Palooza. But Comey was there today, and it was exactly what I expected. It just the, the same old, the same old Sancta Comey doing what he does, being evasive, being smarmy, not giving any real answers to any questions, uh, just generally being a, a pain. And the one, and we might get into a little more of this tomorrow uh, because I'll have more time to focus on this issue. And I want to go back to our uh, immigration battle in a moment here. But I, I did want to just note that Comey was testifying today. He he was asked about what he's done to the FBI's reputation. Play 19. Director Comey, the FBI's reputation has taken a big hit over the last year. Do you share any of the responsibility for that? No. The FBI's reputation has taken a big hit because the President of the United States, with his acolytes, has lied about it constantly. And in the face of those lies, a whole lot of good people who watch your network believe that nonsense. That's a tragedy. That will be undone eventually, but that damage has nothing to do with me. So, so what about McCabe? Well, the deputy director of the FBI that got fired. Did he do anything, Comey, to hurt the reputation of the FBI? What about Peter Strzok working on a case as a senior counterintelligence agent talking about how Trump is a blanking this and a blanking that? While he's investigating him. What about Lisa Page? He's a paramour. That's just fine, huh? She was the same thing. Oh, what can we do to help Hillary? He just got on the list. And what about Comey himself? Leaking information to the New York Times via a cutout so he can settle some political score. That's how important Comey thinks he is. Always, always remember this. Comey ultimately pretends to care so much about the American people but he cares so much more about himself than the American people. And that's evident in everything he does and says now. 
One of the great tragedies that is going on in our country today is the loopholes in our immigration laws and the deficiencies in our immigration laws and left-wing activist judicial rulings that incentivize the most vulnerable populations to come to our country. Last year, and the administration 100, hasn't been 000, able to deter them last from year, making that trip. Last year, 100,000 unaccompanied alien children or children traveling with adults showed up at our southern border. Mm-hmm. President Trump took dramatic action, issued an executive order directing illegal traffic to the ports of entry. But a left-wing activist judge issued a reckless nationwide injunction on the president's order, putting thousands of lives at risk and further enriching these grotesque, and a, a record number continue to cross. Stephen Miller is hated by the left largely because he's effective in talking about immigration policy. I mean, they hate him. They, they protested him. I walked past the protest last week waiting outside of his apartment, harassing him, not letting him, you know, get a good night's sleep, bothering him. Why? Well, because when he speaks of immigration, he knows what the heck he's talking about, and he does not mince words. What's going on now is a scam. People are scamming our immigration system. Thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. And and there are millions who are here illegally. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about people that are using this loophole This idea that if you come to the border with a child now, you deserve special and different treatment. So now people are using, in a sense, children as legal human shields in order to get entry into the United States. That's what they are doing. That's also why you have people that show up with children that are not actually family members. This has been, this doesn't get reported a lot, but this is happening. People who are showing up who are, uh, you know, human smugglers, human traffickers. The cartels are making millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions smuggling people and drugs into the United States. Uh, I mean, meaning that they're using some of the people they're smuggling as part of their drug running operation. They're making billions selling drugs. And Stephen Miller is just saying, look, they're not allowing the Trump administration to even do what they're supposed to do in immigration. Once again, what did we see on the Muslim ban? Oh, it's the mo- it's the worst thing ever. Oh, it's the it's so unconstitutional. No, it turns out it is constitutional. Oh, it turns out that some activist judges on that one were wrong. Does that surprise you? No, of course not, but we know what's really going on here. Stephen Miller saying, look, this one judge, in this case, forget about the Muslim ban for a second, which the Supreme Court said Trump was right, and within his authority, remember, the, he's the commander in chief. You know, p- part of the problem here is that the left does not think of immigration as a security-related matter. And this is this is a really political and culturally uh, salient distinction between left and right. Now, they don't see any threat, any national security implication of immigration. They just don't. They completely dismiss. This idea that any terrorist could ever come into the country via the asylum program. Oh, but that's happened. But they still say that never happens. They dismiss the idea that terrorists uh, or MS-13 gang members, you know, you are more likely in this country to die because a gangbanger, not to freak everybody out, but because a gangbanger, you know, pops off a bunch of a bunch of rounds during a drive by or or, you know, or stabs you in in a robbery than you are from a terrorist attack. So there's the security and law enforcement component of this as well. And, you know, the the president has a duty to the citizens of this country to prevent 
foreign uh, criminal activity from coming into this country. You know, that is in the purview of the federal government and the executive branch. The president sits atop that. But the left rejects the idea that there's any national security importance to the border. They reject the idea that we need to care from a security perspective about what's going on. Uh, and when you look at the 70,000 plus deaths from opioids every year and how much of that overdose rate comes from illegal drugs and the percentage of those illegal drugs that are coming from the cartels, they are a true, they are a clear and present danger to United States citizens, the cartels. And the cartels are running a vast majority of the drugs across our southern border. They're not flying them in on planes. They're not floating them in on, on boats or on go-fasts or any of that stuff. Yeah, occasionally you see one of these drug runners with a submarine or something. It's mostly running it across the border. Sometimes via tunnels, sometimes in, a, in the pickup truck, but however it is, they're taking it across our southern border. And we have, our government has an obligation to stop that. People are dying. They are dying because of this. And a federal judge says, no, you can't, you can't in any way influence immigration policy, President Trump, when it comes to the asylum law that's being abused. Notice how... They're all about the law at the front end and don't care at the back end. The front end of asylum law is if you show up and claim and claim asylum and you pass the initial screening, and the initial screening is basically, do you have a credible fear? If you say yes, you get led into the country. Notice how if, if, if you listen to Democrats, that part of the law is sacred. But the, okay, if you then don't show up for your immigration hearing, your asylum hearing, uh, or you're denied asylum at the hearing, you must be expelled from the country. That part they fight tooth and nail. This is what Democrats do. They don't, they don't reject all laws. They just reject the laws they don't like, but they are literal. They are black and white on laws they do like. You know, there can be no discretion. There can be no good faith operation from their political opponents who are trying to secure the border, trying to secure the country. And so Miller pointing out that this one judge, this one federal judge is able to override the president on an area in his purview, you know, it does force the question, what would happen if President Trump responded to an actual invasion of some kind? Let, let's say, you know, that the, and I don't know, let's say the Russians grabbed one of the, you know, one of the islands off Alaska and Trump was going to respond to it with, with military force. Could one federal judge be like, sorry, Congress has not given you authority to do this. And would that override the president? It's a little thought experiment you could run. Um, you know, this, this is ultimately, this really is about securing the border. You know, Kellyanne Conway, I, I give Kellyanne Conway a lot of credit, man. She's out there. She's in the fight. And she takes so much incoming from the left. And uh, she, she, is a, she is a fighter. It's not easy to do. I even feel sometimes like, man, I, just, I don't know how much more of this defamation, you know, I can take from from the lefties. They're just just such a bunch of wackos. I'm just kidding, though. Shields high, right? I mean, I can't can't be the slogan of the show if I'm not going to hold my shield high. Uh, but Kellyanne said this about border security. Play three. This is way beyond immigration or even the wall. This is border security, and border security is national security. This president has made clear that his primary duty to all of us in this country is to keep us safe. 
And we see what happens when you have a porous border. You have poison like fentanyl and heroin and cocaine pouring over. You have people trying to come here illegally. You have people being promised by coyotes and others that they've paid thousands of dollars to, maybe more. This is a president who knows that we as a nation have been spending billions of dollars over decades helping other nations protect their own sovereign borders. It's high time we do it here. There were 26 Democrats in the Senate who voted for the Secure Fences Act in 2006. And they were none other. Let me just highlight a few for you. Senator Joe Biden, Senator Barack Obama, Senator Chuck Schumer, and <laughs> Senator, ding, 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 Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so uh, what's happened on the border since the 2006 Secure Fences Act was, pat was voted on? It got worse. It's more porous. It's, uh, that's all true. It did get worse. It is more porous. You cannot take Democrats seriously on this issue. They are lying. Uh, we have more on this, though. More updates on the border coming up. This is not what U.S. is all about. This is what Trump is all about. Sure. He doesn't have any love or care or compassion to anybody. So it's, I don't know why this nation has a president like him. So I hope you get rid of Trump soon. Where does the blame lie? Well, in this first, case? first, the people that was involved directly, but they must or they act under orders from somebody else. And so you have to go all the way to the top. And the language is more aggressive than physical violence. Speaking the way Trump speaks is not good for this nation. Change, and change soon, because you're not going to be there for long. So that's the former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox, uh, doing exactly what a lot of the media did, uh, which was find a way to use the death of a seven-year-old girl at the border to not just blame Trump's immigration policy, but to really go after the president of the United States. I mean, make this as though as though Trump himself refused to give this, this girl who was malnourished and, and dehydrated, you know, to give her water to drink. Trump is just no, he is so mean. These people are, are, are crazy. These people are not operating with a, with a rational mindset. And the president of the United States is in, in no way, not only is he not responsible for this, to claim that, that the president would feel anything other than, other than sheer horror at this. I mean, look, say, say, there's a lot of things you can say about this president, a lot of criticisms of him, but uh, you know, I, I think that he's actually a very sympathetic guy. I think that he gives people too many chances. I think that he gives people... Uh, the benefit of the doubt. I think that he views, uh, you know, loyalty as something that's so important that sometimes he does place it above competence. But more than anything else, I think he's a he's a guy who likes to give people second chances. He's a guy who likes to see what's what's better in folks than what they may even see in themselves. And I I think that he is very I think he's very sympathetic. I think that he, you know, he likes people. You know, I don't think Nancy Pelosi is very sympathetic. I'm just going to call it out. I mean, I think Trump is somebody who really, you know, he, he Trump cares about construction workers. He cares about truck drivers. He cares about normal, everyday folks. He's not one of them. I'm not saying he is, and he doesn't pretend to be one of them. But I think he does care about them. And the the notion that he wouldn't care about a seven year old girl on the border this is terrible. I mean, Trump fired off missiles 
because of a, a chemical weapons attack in Syria and because of the photos of children that were gasping for air or that, that were, uh, were dying in, in the Syrian civil war. So it just, you know, it's just a slander. It is just a slander to say that the president doesn't care about this. And, and then when you go to the policies involved here, well, actually, I don't even go to the policies. Let's just go to the facts. You know, last week it was, oh, look at Trump. He's responsible for this. It's so terrible. Well, when you talk to the father of this seven-year-old girl, here's what he said. Play 13. According to DHS officials and the father, the young girl first started showing signs of distress and vomiting during a 90-minute bus ride to a Border Patrol station in Lordsburg, New Mexico. The girl died about 27 hours after being taken into custody. The cause hasn't been determined. The father has told officials he has no complaints about how Border Patrol agents treated him and his daughter and that he believes everyone around them did everything possible to save the girl's life. The father. All right, and I, I feel terrible for this guy because I have a lot of sympathy for people that are trying to come into this country. Doesn't mean I agree with or am okay with those who are doing it illegally, but I get it. It's a great country we live in. If we want to keep it great, though, if we want to make this the beacon of freedom and prosperity and, and dignity that it is for the rest of the world, you know, we have to preserve it. And that means the rule of law and sovereignty matter. But that doesn't mean that I don't, I don't feel sympathy for the people that want to be here, that I, I don't understand that urge and that I don't, you know, I get it, right? You get it too. Yeah, I mean, do I think that you should be able to come here just because, you know, Honduras is in really bad shape? No, but do I feel badly that Honduras is in such bad shape? I mean, you know, on an individual basis, do I feel for people that are trapped in poverty and and misery and have no way of, of bettering their lives? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think that's a basic human feeling that we all have. At least we as Americans have. I mean, I can't speak to the way that other places in the world view other countries, but certainly that's the way that we are, we the American people. Um, but the father is saying, you know, that, that he has no complaints about what DHS did because he knows. They airlifted his seven-year-old to a hospital. I mean, they you know, put her in a helicopter. They had people meet her right away. She was fine. They checked her. She was fine. Nobody thought she wasn't fine. The father didn't know, note that she wasn't fine. And, you know, she wasn't showing any signs of anything. They're, they're overwhelmed as it is with all these people who are coming into the country right now, trying to, you know, find any way, any loophole to stay here. But there's no outward signs. There's nothing to point to to suggest that anything is amiss. And the moment that there was, they had, they had uh, emergency workers meet at the bus because the girl was having a seizure on the bus. And they, they had emergency workers met her. She had been offered, I believe, food and water, according to the reports that I read. And they took her right to the airport. I mean, they're doing, I mean, right to the hospital, rather, airlifted her with a helicopter. I mean, I'm not saying that, of course, they should do that. Anybody who's in mortal peril should be treated in this way in this country. That's who we are. But let's not, you know, they that airlift ride and everything else, I mean, if you start to add this up, I mean, that the cost of that's probably you know, 10 or 15 grand. I mean, you know, the, let's not act like they didn't do anything. That's all I'm saying. Let's not act like the government said, yeah, you know, too bad. You're not one of us furthest thing from it and it's so unfair what the democrats did last week what the schumer pelosi left-wing loons were running with wasn't just an attack on trump although that was obviously very high on the agenda it's also attack on the men and women of border patrol and immigration and customs service who are doing a hard job that we need them to do every day 
and they were being thrown under the bus by Democrats pandering to the open borders maniacs in this country. And it's unacceptable. All right, those pe- The men and women of our Border Patrol are men and women just like you and me. They're Americans. They're doing a hard job. They have their own husbands and wives, their own children. And for anyone to suggest, as was so widely suggested, that it was a indifference and policy failure last week that led to that seven-year-old girl dying, that's a scandal. But this is what we're, you know, the scandal is the lie. But this is what we're going to continue to deal with because the left, in its with its lust, its thirst for power, the left is so thirsty for power and authority. With that drive, they are willing to do almost anything. That will push them to, to lie and to defame the men and women of Border Patrol. And we need to be on guard because this was not the fault of the United States people or the United States government. It's about to be a new year. You want to start it off right with all the major decisions you're making for your business. And that includes background investigations. You know, you got to have vetted people working with you. You need to know they're people you can trust, that they've represented themselves properly. This is just what business has to do. Global Verification Network is the answer to all of that, all right? They're the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. They work with small companies, even little startups, entrepreneurs, small businesses, all the way up to huge corporations. So whether you're somebody that's making all the calls about who gets hired or you work in the HR department of a massive company, you want to at least give a call to the folks at Global Verification and talk to them about your background check needs. They can come up with a program that works for you, that's best for you, and they are the people that you can trust. Call 877-695-1179 or go check out Global Verification Network online. That's mygvn.com. Again, mygvn.com. It's an awful, awful ruling. We're going to fight this tooth and nail. And the first thing we're going to do when we get back there uh, in the Senate is urge, put a vote on the floor, urging an intervention in the case. The judge, a lot of this depends on congressional intent. And if a majority of the House and a majority of the Senate say that this case should be overturned, it'll have a tremendous effect on the appeal. It's a great ruling for our country. We'll be able to get great health care. We'll sit down with the Democrats if the Supreme Court upholds. We'll be uh, sitting down with the Democrats and we will get great health care for our people. Let's say repeal and replace Handled a little bit differently, but it was a big, big, big thing. All right, so the big news that just broke, uh, what was it, over over the over the weekend, it came out, I think, on Friday, uh, is that this judge, U.S. District Court Judge Reed O'Connor of Texas, has declared Obamacare unconstitutional. Yeah, it was Friday evening this came down. Unconstitutional which people now say puts the health care the healthcare law in jeopardy. I, I have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest with you, as I always am. I've got to get rid of that figure of speech. I've, I'm mixed about this. I have mixed feelings about this. And, and no, it's not that I think Obamacare is good. I think Obamacare is unconstitutional. I think Obamacare is a badly constructed, badly implemented, and long-term, very destructive bill. Uh, both to our legal order in this country, uh, as well as to the health care that we receive. Um, I, I think that it puts us on 
Oh, 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 and <laughs> ooh, 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 buckets all like I'm like the kid who's excited in the class to answer his own questions. Apparently, ooh, ooh, call on me. Uh, but then also the, the the third point about it is that as somebody who got I got into media during the Obamacare fight. I mean the the era of the Tea Party and Obamacare. That's when I thought that you know this this was the place I, I didn't want to work for the executive branch. I didn't want to work for the Obama anymore. In the uh, for, sorry for the Obama administration in the CIA. So I left and I, I wanted to do other things and I got this opportunity, long story short, bada bing, here I am years later. Uh, but I, I think Obamacare is terrible. That all said, um, oh wait, no, no, the, the, the thing that I didn't add into this is that it was a step on the way to single payer. It was a step on the way to single payer. That I've been saying this many. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm like some prognosticator. Everybody's been paying attention and saying this takes us down the pathway toward single payer. This takes us to a place where the government all of a sudden starts writing the check. And once the government starts writing the checks for some people's health care, then that's how they try to get rid of employer provided health care. Because employers are going to be like, you know, forget this. Let's just have the government write the checks for all of our employees. Why, why do we want to do this? Why do we want to shoulder the increasing premiums and decreasing level of care and all this other stuff? Forget that. You know, let, let people get their, their public option. People get their own health care via the government. Um, so those are my, I, I, one, Obamacare is constitutional. Two, it's crap lousy and bad for health care and bad for the rule of law. And three, it's it's just a waypoint on the path to single payer, uh, which has been Medicare for all slash single payer, depending on what the Democrats actually go for. I don't think they're going to go for a true single payer. They'll probably go for some expansion of the Medicare program because people like Medicare. OK, so then why am I saying I'm mixed about it? Well, because the Republicans in a in what I think I have to say, Republican Congress in a combination of gutlessness and lack of legislative skill and foresight, Republicans do not have, did not have a replacement bill ready to go for this thing. You know, how is that possible? How could we be in this place where after, I can't even remember how many it was. I want to say it was dozens. It felt like it was 70. It might as well have been a, you know, a million. All these votes that they took on the floor of the House, you know, we'd like to repeal and replace Obamacare. Okay, great. Repeal and replace Obamacare. Then when it came time, we couldn't even get 51 senators to vote for it. And we all know who's responsible for the, the shortfall there. But at the end of the day, Republicans did not get it done. And we were told they would get it done. So I think we're allowed to be very disappointed. And Republicans also keep getting schooled in the demagoguery department here by Democrats because it just this just turns into a fight over pre-existing conditions. That's all, that's all we ever hear about. Pre-existing. The bill is, you know, thousands of pages long, but it's just, you know, oh, Republicans want to take away your pre-existing conditions, and now it's Republicans want to take away your health care. Those of us who also work saying that all they have to do is pass Obamacare and you'll never really be able to get rid of it, we're right. We're right. Uh, so, you know, th- that's an additional layer here. I think Republicans don't look good on this. This isn't a political winner for them because when they had a majority in the House and the Senate and a and a Republican in the White House, it's you, you can't say, oh, Buck, they needed 60 votes because they couldn't get to 50 plus one with 
the tie coming from Pence. They couldn't get there. So it's irrelevant that they couldn't get to the 60 because they couldn't even get to, to the 50 that they would have needed here. So, you know, that you, you got to remember that. So Republicans look look lousy on this. And then also, you know, I, I don't like responding to a bad uh, a bad decision of the judiciary with it, with what I think is another weak decision from the judiciary. He, you know, Obamacare is unconstitutional because of the individual mandate compelling. It's, it's compelled commerce. Essentially, the government's forcing you now to buy a product. And as much as you and I can laugh at how we think the government should probably make people buy a Bible and make people buy a firearm of some kind to keep in their homes, and that would probably make for a better country. Nonetheless, I would not advocate for that. Okay, I do not advocate for the government forcing people to buy a product just to be in this country. People will bring up, oh, health insurance, I mean, uh, auto insurance and other things. That's that's uh, a a privilege that people engage in. But look, that was at the part of that was at the heart of the whole at the part at the heart of the debate before. Um, but you know, you, you don't you don't have to drive and be in America. Uh, you know that that's a, a regulation on you do you have to have insurance under the Obamacare mandate, and that's why they have this this penalty associated with it, which they said was a tax and it's a penalty. And and I think they did real harm to our notion of rule of law by. What could be more of a changing of plain words than saying something is a penalty when it's a tax and it's a tax when it's a penalty? Wait, which is it? Um, that's so, you know, I, I don't think that this is a, a strong decision, though. Uh, I don't think it's a strong decision because ultimately the severability clause and the, the idea that because you don't have the individual mandate, the individual mandate is necessary. The individual mandate has not been struck from this thing by a legislative act. It just is not being enforced. And and the decision to not enforce it via executive order is different than an act of Congress to remove it. So I, I don't think it's a strong decision. I'm just going to tell you, I don't think it's a strong decision. And I, and I don't mean to disappoint people who are all excited. Oh, because it's not going to last. The Fifth Circuit, this isn't the Ninth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit is... A pretty conservative, at least as federal circuits go, uh, as a pretty con- or as appeal circuits go, as uh, a pretty conservative one. I don't think this is going to make it past there, and, and maybe then it'll be appealed to the Supreme Court. But I'm not even sure the Supreme Court would take it up. I think that you'll see this one will likely get uh, get over. This is a decision that will likely get overturned, and then you'll have all the gloating from the libs who say, "See, we get our way." with the law even when we shouldn't and then we get our, our way with the law when we should you know they'll say that we get it on both sides uh, so this is not the this is not the sweeping victory that I think a lot of people uh, were were hoping it would be uh, when the when you see the initial headline I know I felt the same way when you see the headline about oh my gosh look at this uh, you know we we should uh, we should be so happy. Obamacare is finally, you know, it's like ding dong, the witch is dead, right? Obamacare is gone. It's not. It's not good. For, it's definitely the law of the land for the, the next year. So they're not changing it for that. And it's just getting a stay here. You know, ultimately, this is we're running around all these legal circles with this now with Obamacare. Here's Here's where the real, as I see it, where the real debate is or where it really should be. All right. You have... On the one hand, um, 
a, a Democrat left that believes that health care, this is the really fundamental health care debate in this country right now. Democrats on the left think that health care is a human right and that the state should be in charge of determining who gets health care and at what level. And they can do this better and more efficiently than the, than the private sector can. And they've managed to convince enough people through a lot of uh, tricks of accounting. Right? People think that Medicare is paid for. Medicare is not paid for. Okay? Medicare beneficiaries take twice as much out of the program as they pay into it over their entire life of Medicare taxes. All right, so this, you know, this is a thing. I know people don't like to hear that. People like to say, oh, I paid into Medicare. Okay, but most people pay into Medicare, take out a lot more, which just means that they're, they're running up the deficit. That care is running up the deficit. And people like it. Of course they like it. It's free stuff. It's, it's subsidized by tax dollars of people that pay into it over there, but it's, it's still getting free stuff. But this is how they've managed to convince people that you want the government to be in charge of more of your health care by essentially telling them that the free stuff model is just going to get expanded and expanded. But, you know, that, that quote by Thatcher, the problem with socialism is you run out of other people's money. The problem with subsidized health care is you're going to run out of people to subsidize it and you're going to be the subsidy. Or your children or your grandchildren are going to be the subsidy. That, that's where we're heading. So you have on the one side people who just have convinced a large portion of the American electorate that you want the government more involved in paying more of your money, taxpayer dollars for health care. On the other side, you have the, hey, let's get the free market involved here. But they're fighting a losing battle right now because the health care market is already, a large portion of it is already taken up by government spending. And that, that portion's getting larger all the time. And we're just not winning the argument about how you can get better, more efficient, more quality care uh, if you have a free market in healthcare. You know, what you really want is essentially everyone to have catastrophic coverage, meaning if you get really sick, you're just covered, okay? If you get really sick, you get, and, and then, you, you know, you have to have some incentive for people, and this is what nobody wants to talk about. And now you're getting into a whole, you know, no one wants to talk about diseases uh, that are largely lifestyle driven, which is the biggest single driver of healthcare spending in this country. People say that, oh, look at Europe, they've got better healthcare outcomes than we do. That's because in Europe, people are generally a little healthier than they are here. And a lot of that is diet and lifestyle. The number one drivers of our healthcare spending uh, in, in terms of disease are type 2 diabetes, uh, cancer, and heart disease. Those are the ones that are dry. And, and the ones that are getting larger and larger as a percentage all the time are type 2 diabetes and, and uh, cardiac diseases, different, different diseases of, of the cardiac system. And that's, a lot of that's driven by lifestyle. And that's where you say, okay, well, we don't want people to have to pay, you know, people have to pay more, but, you know, do you, do you have an insurance system or do you have subsidized care? If it's insurance, you know, if you're a, if you're somebody who's driving a car 120 miles an hour all the time and you're getting caught every now and again, insurance company's going to, going to charge you more. If you're a smoker, they're going to charge you more. Well, there are other things too where they're going to, they, they, if they were doing a true insurance system based on a risk pool, they would charge some people more. We don't want to hear this. This is the, and, and people who are getting right now, they're probably getting a little frustrated and even I'm talking about it. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. So forget about pre-existing conditions, lifestyle choice. 
as it affects the healthcare market is something that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wants to look at it and, and deal with that component of the spending. And so that's why we're just going to keep getting deeper and deeper down this down this rabbit hole. And I think we're going to get to a Medicare for all point in this country where, where the you know the Democrats are going to view that as a winning issue. And we're going to have to deal with with the reality of a country that you know has a Medicare for all option. That's not going to be good, but it's very popular. And it's very popular because people don't really understand what it entails. Let me what do, what would that entail? What are the problems with it? And where is all this Obamacare discussion going? That's going to be our conversation coming up here in a moment. Remember, we also have my friend Sean Parnell joining to talk about this really difficult case of this uh, Green Beret who's now facing capital murder charges for killing a Taliban bomb maker. We'll get to that coming up with Sean Parnell. He's a combat vet, great guy. He'll be talking to us in a moment. Stay with me. S to the N to the I-P-P-Y, snippy.com. There are all these social media platforms out there right now that are engaged in a forced progressive groupthink. They change the algorithms. They shadow ban. They have people that get terms of service violations that haven't done anything wrong. And guess what? They're conservatives. If you want to send a message and if you want to have your voice heard, you know what you can do? Go to snippy.com. Thousands of my listeners have joined snippy.com. They're now expressing their opinions and they're stirring up lively conversations. You see, Snippy is this unbiased new social media platform that encourages freedom of expression. They're all about the First Amendment. No political bias, no censorship, no shadow banning ever. Now, Snippy.com has an updated user interface and exciting new features also available in the Apple App Store and available for Android. S-N-I-P-P-Y, Snippy.com, free to join, free to use, totally free service. Just go check it out for yourself, team. Start your account, Snippy.com. You remove what the Democrats and Robert said was the absolutely essential element, the individual mandate, which we did in the tax cut bill a year ago, mm-hmm. and the whole thing has to fall. They're the ones that said it. It does have to fall. The whole thing hung on the individual mandate, and now that tax is zero. It's gone away, so the, the act must fall. Their words will come back to haunt them. It should get to the Supreme Court, and Roberts is either going to have to say, you know what? I was just lying. I was trying to come up with some reason to to uphold Obamacare. But uh, or he can say, you know what? I, I said it and I meant it. And therefore, the whole thing must fall. You guys know I like Congressman Gomer out of Texas a lot. I think I think Louie's great guy. Uh, I think he's wrong here. You know, and, and uh, we know we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm I. I learn a lot more from when I'm wrong, I think, than me just running around saying I'm right all the time. So it's maybe maybe the congressman sees something I don't hear, but I, I think he's wrong on this one uh, because the individual mandate has not been removed by Congress. It's been removed by executive order. That's different. It's still the law. Uh, they're just not enforcing it. And, you know, we get very upset when, and rightfully so, when President Obama, for example, decides that the law isn't really the law, and he's not really going to enforce some aspects of it just because he doesn't like some aspects of it. You know, that's that's also uh, not that's not good. So I, I you know, I, I got to tell you, we got to keep it real here, folks. I do not see this one. There, the, uh, the original Obamacare challenge by the individual mandate, Roberts completely screwed that up. But this one, I think, I think conservatives, this is not going to stand. And it just puts Republicans in a bad place going forward for health care. That's really... That's that's my sense of it. Uh, 
And you, you know, you you heard me. I, I'm I'll go back and I'll update this one. We'll see if I end up being right. I have a feeling I will be, but I could be wrong. Uh, so we have this this case of um, Major Matthew Goldstein, and and I want to uh, we're going to bring on Sean Parnell, who's my friend and a, and a a real great guy, a combat vet. He's going to talk about this. But here's Major Matthew Goldstein uh, talking to Brett Bear on November fourth, and also his father talking about this issue. Play clip fourteen. Did you kill the Taliban bomb maker? Yes. You willingly offered up these details right. at the CIA, right? That's correct. And that's where it all started. Pretty much. It was an enemy combatant. He was a known bomb maker. He was identified. And the actions taken were to protect the lives of the villagers and those in his unit and the people around him. What is moral? What is ethical? When you are in warfare, faced with a disgraceful enemy that will kill women and children, that plays by no rules, what's ethical when you know lives are in the balance? Do you leave it to the system or do you decide that you must act? That's a question we're going to tackle here in a moment. We're going to pose it to my friend Sean Parnell. Stay with me. A case of a Green Beret who could face the death penalty. President Trump has already weighed in on this one. He has said he's going to take a look at it. But what exactly is the story behind this uh, this controversy? What happened with Major Matthew Goldstein and and what should we make of all this? We've got our friend Sean Parnell with us now. He is a uh, combat veteran. He uh, led forces in the front lines in Afghanistan, wrote a book about it, a fantastic book called Outlaw Platoon, and uh, he's a former Army Ranger. Mr. Parnell, great to have you back. It is uh, great to be here, Buck. Thanks for having me. All right, man. So so let's just, for, for the folks listening, let, let's walk through a little bit of this. So so uh, Gold, Major Goldstein, he's a, he's a Green Beret, so he's an Army guy. He is in the Battle of Helmand in Afghanistan, uh, back in what is it, 2010? I or 2010, and things get really nasty. And and then what 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 is the issue at at hand here, Sean? What happened? Well, apparently he killed a he killed a guy that a bomb maker that was responsible for killing a couple of Marines. Um, and you know the here here's the deal. You know where you know, and I said this on Twitter, and I took a lot of criticism for it, but. You know, when you're in a war, the object is to win, and you win by killing people. And oftentimes, that is an inconvenient truth. Now, that's not the sole mission, but, you know, the mission of Green Berets is foreign internal defense, which means training up indigenous populations so so that host nations can fight wars on their own. But ultimately, their first mission is just like any, anybody else's, close with and destroy the enemy. Now, they knew that this guy was a bomb maker. He had American blood on his hands, and this Green Beret killed him. And so... My my issue, of course. Wait, wait, Sean. Can we just just to give a little additional context? So, my, sure, my understanding sure. here from the from the reports that are out is that, as you said, he this this guy's a Taliban bomb maker. Um, they just lost two Marines to a bomb. They believe that that he they found bomb making materials in his house after a sweep near an area. So they so they lost two Marines. They did a sweep. They find the bomb uh, bomb making materials rather, and then they bring that guy this this uh, Taliban member back to base and that taliban member sees an afghan tribal elder the tribal elder is then terrified that the taliban member is going to tell all of his taliban buddies 
hey, I saw this. At, you know, so essentially the elders like I'm dead and my whole family's dead. This guy saw me. And so then Goldstein, again, this is what's all alleged. This is what's in the reports. Hasn't been adjudicated yet in a court. But Goldstein then allegedly just says, all right, this guy, we got to take him out. And so he he shoots him. And then they bury him in a shallow grave and later take him to a burn pit. This was all in the New York Times review. Of this. So the, those are the the you know, that that's the totality of the facts as we know them right now. But then so so what do you make of this? Well, first of all, I mean, yeah, it, it's if that if if those are the facts and that's really what happened, you know, there to me, you know, there's we, we have we have to we have to, I mean, to me, we have to look in. We have to look into what happened. I mean, because really, we don't know. That's that's from The New York Times. We have, I, I, mean, I want to read the, the official report. Um, but, you know, just to give you give you a sense of, of how this sort of thing works. You know, we had an interpreter infiltrate my platoon. And he killed one of my soldiers and wounded four others seriously. And we took him into captivity. We did everything right, right? And we sent him up to Bagram, and he was released on his own recognizance because, you know, we had to, because of some paperwork mishap or snafu. And now that soldier, that insurgent, that foreign fighter, is now back on the battlefield killing more Americans. And so, you know, obviously... There has to be a line. See, my, my issue here, Buck, is that the rules of engagement are slanted towards Americans and are slanted towards war fighters. You know, we have to put American lives first. And so if you follow this logic, of course, it's horrific and wrong to execute prisoners while they're in captivity. In fact, it's contrary to our values that Americans, as Americans, it's what separates Americans on the battlefield from our enemy. The compassion that we show them is not a value that they share but obviously, there has to be a fine. There has to be a middle a middle road here, you know, between executing soldiers, you know, in prison, which is terrible and wrong, it should never happen, uh, to capturing them and doing the right thing, and higher, just releasing them back on the battlefield, which happens time and time and time again, and you know, American soldiers just get sick of it. They get sick and tired of seeing their 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 brothers in arms come home and flag draped coffins because they caught a terrorist, did everything right to, to capture him and do the, do the right thing and, and make sure that he's, that he, that he's turned in only to have him released. It is the most maddening and frustrating thing in the world. And, you know, I, I, I have to live with the pain of losing a soldier every day. My soldier, you know, his name is Scott Cole. He, he, his little kid will never hug his father because of this, you know? Um, so it's, it's a tough situation. And, and Sean, can I ask, you know, for, from from the perspective of from a from a civilian perspective, looking at this, it, it sounds like what Goldstein, if he had done things and, and also we're assuming that the the facts here that that have been presented are are the storyline, right? There might be additional. And also for those wondering, how did this all come about? The army had an initial investigation. He was reprimanded, but they did not press criminal charges. Then he gave an interview with. Uh, and that came out of a CIA interview where he was interviewing for a job. This is all according to the New York Times, interviewing for a job with the CIA in 2011. He said he had killed this guy, and then there was an investigation by the Army. There was no charge. But then later he sat down with Brett Baer, who, by the way, for whatever it's worth, I think is one of the fairest and one of the best in the business. But Brett Baer just asked him, look, look what happened here, and the guy said, yeah, I killed this guy. And then they've reopened this investigation. But but to, to me, Sean, it sounds like if... if Goldstein had done everything that he was supposed to do. What would have happened here is a Taliban bomb maker would have gone free, killing two Marines who, to your point, are never going to see their families again. 
and would have almost certainly killed this tribal elder, probably his family along with him. And, you know, maybe maybe we get him again later on the battlefield. Maybe we don't. Yes, that's my problem with it. And if you if you follow this logic and what I was what I was saying, and, you know, you you articulated it perfectly, Buck. But if you follow this logic, like they are the rules of engagement right now places the lives of the enemy over the lives of Americans. And that, to me, is the core issue. That, to me, is the problem. Um, you're exactly right. Maybe we catch this. Maybe, hey, we do everything right, and the system fails us. So what this, what this amounts to is, is obviously it's a rules of engagement problem. But we're putting American servicemen and women in situations that are impossible to navigate. There's no right situation. So you capture them. You do the right thing. A bomb maker is released on a paperwork snafu. Or you kill him to ensure he never goes back on the battlefield to kill American soldiers again. Now, of course, like, God, if, if this Green Beret executed this guy and dumped him in a shallow grave, yeah, that, I got a real problem with that. Um, but that's why I just want to see what the facts are in this case. And I want to hear this guy's side of the story before I make a final judgment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that people also are, are very understandably reacting uh, with with horror at the notion that that one of our own who was caught in a situation like this, and this is not this is not walking in, and you know this isn't you know my lie. This isn't walking in and, and shooting women and children. Someone's this is a guy who's trying exactly. to defend his guys. He's in a difficult situation, and and you know and, and he does what he thinks he needs to do. Not just remember, it's not just justice for those two Marines. It's also saving a an Afghan uh, ally and and probably his family too from God knows what the Taliban was going to do to them. And I think Sean, the notion that and they keep this keeps getting repeated in the news reports that the death penalty is even on the table for this guy as a possible charge. Yeah. People are like, uh, uh-uh, no way, not 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 in this America. No, exactly. It's 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 absurd and it's ridiculous, you know. And and it's something else that people don't even think about, right? How many drone strikes have been called from the Oval Office where they where they make calculated tactical decisions, whether it was George W. Bush. Barack Obama or, and, or Donald Trump, right, where they, they know that there's a high-value target in a certain area in Pakistan, and they call in a drone strike, and they kill him and every single member of his family, kids included. Now, all of those people that call those drone strikes in from their comfy desks and offices are part of the same chain of command that this Green Beret is in, except for this Green Beret is front towards enemy, getting shot at every single day, making decisions, you know, split-second decisions that could mean life or death. And so we're going to throw this guy to the fire, charge him with a crime to where the death penalty is on the table, but every single civilian or politician that's ever called in a drone strike where women and children have been killed, and by the way, it's happened hundreds of times, all those people are okay. So why, why, why does the chain of command, why do the rules engagement, why do, why do they differ for soldiers that are boots on the ground in combat in tougher situations than they do for our own politicians here at home? Very good question. I, I'm wondering, wondering what the answer would be from the people that are making decisions. Speaking of that, Sean, the president's already gotten on Twitter about this thing. It, it looks like he he says he's going to look into it. Um, if this if this goes through, we, and I know that you would say we, we'd have to go through the process to find out what the full facts are, right? He'd have to go, and I, you know much more about this than I do. Be through UCMJ and through a court martial and. Right. Uh, if that all happens, though, and it sounds like the story is what we think it is at this point, presidential commutation, presidential pardon, would that be top of mind for you? Too early to know? How, how do you assess well, it? Yeah, 
absolutely. And I would say I would I, I would absolutely I don't want I don't want this Green Beret charge. You know, I mean, like, look, if there have been instances, I think there's one specific instance in Afghanistan of an American soldier going into a home and killing women and kids that to me cannot be tolerated. But but like it's important for people to remember that we are still in a war. The, the man that this Green Beret killed had American blood on his hands. If he captures him, he sends him into the system, and the system fails him, or we release him, and that insurgent goes back onto the battlefield and kills Americans, it is a lose-lose situation. And, and to me, we're putting Americans in impossible situations. So to, to me, the, the government and the chain of command have a greater responsibility uh, than this Green Beret do on the battlefield to reform the way that our wars are fought and, and to basically make the rules of engagement a heck of a lot simpler. You know, to me, the duty in the, the onus is on the chain of command rather than this Green Beret. There's a, there's a reason why the Army sort of just slapped him on the wrist and said, you know, move out and draw fire, so to speak. Now, this investigation was reopened after the fact, but I do think, I do think that the president needs to get involved and, and he needs to have a real hard look at what our rules of engagement are and whether or not they benefit American soldiers or the enemy. Sean Pornell, everybody, the author of Outlaw Platoon. Sean, we got to leave it there for now. Thank you for your service, my friend. Always good to talk to you, and uh, thanks for your perspective on this one. Everybody, America, we all love Casey's show. No, no Prague, ever, never. He posted it on the Internet when his lawyers from McDermott, Will, and Emery answered that question, and he's actually instructed me when I was serving as his lawyer, just don't answer it anymore because it's one of these uh, silly things that constantly gets repeated. So the answer is no, he's never been to Prague, or even a reporter asked me, what about the suburbs of Prague? <laughs> no. <laughs> Anywhere nearby, okay. That's Lenny Davis, who was, was the lawyer for Michael Cohen. Talking about Prague. Now, wh- why do we care about Prague? What about Prague is is of interest at this point? Oh, that's right. Prague, you'll remember, was the place where Michael Cohen was, according to the dossier, supposed to have visited as part of the whole Russia collusion scandal. Now, that Prague would appear in this way in the dossier, in the phony baloney, nonsense, DNC-funded, Hillary Clinton stamp of approval slime document, anti-Trump screed, that was the dossier, that, that Prague appears there, and, that, and now we know beyond any reasonable doubt it should never have appeared there. Th- this is meaningful. This tells us something. This is, not, uh, this is not something that we should just look at and say, oh, you know, who cares, no big deal, because this is one of those verifiable or falsifiable facts you know, if you recall, when we were talking here on this show about the Blasey Ford situation, right? Christine Blasey Ford, she came out and I said that from the get-go there, and remember, she's wrong. She's either lying or delusional, and the other women are just straight-up lying uh, who accused Kavanaugh. But from the get-go, it was highly convenient and therefore very suspect that every aspect of her story was impossible based on her gaps in memory, impossible to falsify. You know, did not know the date, did not know the house, did not know who took her home, did not, you know, all the things that you would have to have in place in, or, or, or any of the things that you could have in place to say that is factually inaccurate. This, this thing that you've, this, this story that you're telling, this fact that you've put into it, we can prove is false because once you have a false fact, then you have 
people uh, raising doubts about the whole rest of it. Now apply that, which is one of the reasons why I knew that the Blasey Ford thing was a scam. Because, uh, you know, they, they just happened to look far back. In, they, it was plausible enough, but vague enough that you could believe it, but you could not disbelieve it. Um, so that's that's important. On the, uh, on the, you know, Prague traveling, that we don't, that we don't know, that we don't know more of the dossier's falsification at this point is not, or rather that we can't prove that more of it's false, does not mean that we should not have huge red flags going off in our minds about, you know, they got this wrong, what else did they get wrong, right? I mean, you know, we know Prague didn't happen, but what else in there, people would say, oh, Buck, the Russian hookers and the golden shower. Um, pardon me, that's what it said in the dossier. I know, I know, I'm not trying to be gross. But the, you know, those aspects of it, people would say, well, we can't disprove it yet. But since we can disprove Prague, doesn't that mean that we should have more doubts about the whole dossier's veracity? And then add into this, the dossier was used by the federal government for a counterintelligence investigation using FISA warrants, which means the most sophisticated intelligence apparatus on the planet was, was effectively turned against individuals like Papadopoulos and Carter Page. Where are the charges, I, I, I remind you, where are the charges against, against Carter Page? Remember when Carter Page was like patient zero of Russia collusion? I mean, Carter Page was supposed to be the guy who was going to make all... There's lunacy. No charges. They can't even get this guy online about anything. I mean, he's the most earnest. I'll talk to you about whatever you want as long as you want guy ever. I don't even know if he has counsel representing him when he meets with the special counsel. No charges against Carter Page. But the dossier was used in order to get that FISA app up. I mean, this stuff is a sham. It's an embarrassment because Russia collusion's a farce. But the sad truth is that it served its purpose. Now that we know that Prague didn't happen, we know the dossier is garbage. We know that all the Russia collusion stuff is nonsense. You know what they've done? They've moved on to other, other so-called crimes, which was always the plan. The obvious point that everybody should understand is that the FBI didn't ask him these questions to learn the truth because they knew the truth. They knew the truth. They weren't trying to obtain more information. They were simply giving him an opportunity to lie. I don't think in America we want to empower the FBI or grand juries or prosecutors to impose morality tests, criminal morality tests on citizens, give them opportunities to lie, opportunities to tell the truth, test them. And as Judge Sullivan implied, and as Judge Ellis said very clearly, the goal here was not to get Flynn, obviously. He's just a means to the end. Their goal was to find some low-hanging fruit, figure out a way of getting him to lie to the FBI so that they could squeeze him then, either to sing or to compose. The obvious target here was Donald Trump. The obvious target of the whole Flynn saga was Donald Trump. That much is for sure. Let, let me take a, a moment to step back here and just say that it's it's troubling to me to see how even the most basic notions of fairness, you know, one of the things that really does separate this country from other countries is the respect that, that every American historically has had for the rule of law. Um, it's something that we really do take from English common law and from our 
uh, from our colonial our colonial founding and you know we we, we have this notion that people all we, we all kind of know the law is important we all know and I'm not saying people don't obviously either have ignorance of the law or discard it when they see fit but in general we we take the law very seriously in fact Orwell in his uh in, in some of his writings made it very clear that what he felt made Englishmen different in the 1940s from other countries was just this idea that the law applies to everyone and everyone has to obey the law and the law is meaningful. That's not true in a lot of countries. A lot of countries, the law is always kind of up for debate, discussion, uh, based purely upon power dynamics, right? Well, the law isn't really the law if you're, you know, a sheikh, you know, if you're from the Middle East, the law doesn't really count. The law isn't really the law if you're tied to the royal family in some other country, you know, the law, and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and we don't accept that. Uh, and we, we, don't, we don't believe that, that that should be something that we change, that we adopt from other countries. But what we're seeing increasingly is that people view the law as a political instrument. Not, not that the law obviously isn't always going to have political implications, but that they can try to abuse the law specifically to find a way of attacking their political opponents. And, and th- this is very self-evident when you just do a little bit of a, of a mental checklist here of, okay, what are some of the things that we've been told are really important laws that are used to go after either Trump or his associates or try to come up with some narrative meant to take down Trump and his associates? The Logan Act. Okay, Logan Act has never been used in 200 years. The Logan Act is effectively not really a law. But Sally Yates pretended it was a law so that she could go after a Trump associate. But, you know, the, the Logan Act, that, that, that's one example um, of one. What about the Emoluments Clause? How many people have really thought long and hard about the Emoluments Clause? Oh, Trump can't be president because of owning hotels. And, and if a foreigner pays money in a hotel to stay there and Trump owns some interest in that hotel, it could influence. I mean, this is, this is nonsense. Right? What, it, what it really would mean is that nobody could nobody could be a businessman and go into government without giving up all of their ownership in any company or any business. That's what it would mean based on this liberal interpretation. of, uh, and, th- and then you get into uh, a campaign finance law, which is among the most arbitrary of all the laws that exist. Why is the current maximum personal contribution? I don't even know what it is. I think it's $2,700 or something. Why is that the number? Because they say so. Why isn't it 5,000? Why isn't it 50,000? Because they say so. I mean, there's really no rhyme or reason to it. This is not really much of a, they, they just kind of threw a dart at a board and said, yeah, we'll say that's what the, and if you spend more than that or you give more money than that, if you use a straw, donor, anything like that, you're a criminal now. They want, they want you to believe you're a criminal. Meanwhile, the media really operates as an unlicensed I mean, the mainstream corporate media operates as an unlicensed Democrat pack and has a tremendous amount of influence over the elections and don't have to think about whether they're giving by but they make airtime decisions. My friend, that is money. Make no make no uh, mistake about it. That is money. They're giving by the way they cover people. That is money. It is effectively dollars. What do most political campaigns spend a majority of their funds on? Ad buys. That's right. Ad buys for advertising. Well, you know, you can see now from the way that Trump was so successful, 
if you're just effective enough at media, you don't even need to spend that money. You don't spend more money than the other guy on that. So anyway, you see how there's all these different ways, though, that the Democrat Party has just tried to find a means to use the law, find a way to come up with a, a construct of the law that Trump or his people have violated it. And online to the FBI, there should be way more introspection about what's really going on here. I mean, that we accept, or we're supposed to accept, that the government can lie to you lots and lots. I mean, the government can tell you that your wife has flipped on you, that you're, uh, they can tell you that you know they've got you on a wiretap they don't even have you on. They can put somebody next to you who pretends to be your best friend and care about you more than anybody, and then that person you know, was wearing a wire. I mean, you know, all the different ways of subterfuge, of deception the government can engage in. And, and you know, people say, oh, Buck, that's necessary to catch drug dealers. Yeah, but, but there's a discretion involved here, right? The same way that, you know, technically the government can send in a SWAT team, I guess, whenever it decides that it, it, it feels like it. But we get a little bit annoyed at, you know, what would be a clear abuse of authority if, for example, you've got a white-collar criminal who says he's going to turn himself in on on Monday and the government just to make a make a stink. And they've done this kind of thing before. They'll send in, you know, 20 guys who are armed to arrest somebody in their office. You know, this that's the pre-Barara move, by the way, to try to get maximum press and to try to make an arrest as much of a show trial as possible. That's right, pre-CNN Barara. Uh you know, this is there's so many ways that the law can be abused and we need to be aware of it. And that's not the same thing as abusing the foundation of the system. That's trying to make sure the system is functioning the way it's supposed to. You know, there's a difference between trying to blow the whole thing up and trying to criticize it to make sure that it's what we've been promised and what we're supposed to have. And this whole lying to the FBI thing with Flynn, I mean, that's where I see them really just abandon any ideas of basic fairness. Um, now, I also have to note that this, the, these guilty pleas uh, today um, from these Flynn, uh, these Flynn-associated individuals for this uh, Turkish lobbying, right? That 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 you could have somebody uh, that's working as the incoming national security advisor. I'm sorry, indicted, not not guilty pleas, indicted. Pardon me. Um, that's what I meant to say, that you have these former Flynn associates who are indicted. Let me just say, this is bad. Uh, I'm not here to, to defend everything that General Flynn did despite his decades of, of military service. Uh, I, I'm not here to, to say that everything Flynn did. I've told you from the beginning, I did not like that General Flynn took money from RT, from Russia Today, which is a Kremlin propaganda channel. Now, I'm not saying it's criminal. I'm just saying I don't like it. Because when Buck was living with, you know, three roommates in the West Village in New York and had no money and was being offered hits on RT, I was saying, uh-uh, I'm not going to be a part of that. You know, and they were trying to sweet talk me and I could have been a contributor there and all this other stuff. No way. Never even appeared on their air. And I made that conscious decision. Now, other people could feel differently about it. I can get, but but I, I don't, I'm not okay with that. The Flynn associate here, Bijan Kian, who's been charged as part of conspiracy to violate federal lobbying rules. He faces up to 15 years in prison. And you got these these two guys, Bijan Kian and Ekim Alptekin, who were using Flynn on their masthead, in a sense, 
to add to their credibility that they were trying to get this. There's a lot of complexity here with this case, but uh, Gulan, who is this exiled cleric, is living in Pennsylvania of all places. I get him extradited to Turkey and they're doing this in a shady fashion. This is not okay. And I think this may be why General Flynn hasn't fought the line charge more vociferously because this is good. This is a tougher thing for people to to brush off, excuse, or defend. Uh, based on the fact pattern I'm seeing here, you cannot have the incoming national security advisor associated with a stealth a stealth lobbying campaign for the uh, Erdogan government in Turkey with regard to U.S. policy that affects Turkey. This is bad. This is very problematic. So I would just note that Flynn, I've been a very strong defender of Flynn um, because I know because he was set up. I mean, they entrapped him. The whole thing is garbage. But this Turkish lobbying, this this looks like really poor judgment. Was Flynn's role in it criminal? I don't know. We'd have to see what the what the facts of the case are. But, you know, I, I think if Flynn was in look, he shouldn't have been involved with this at all. He really shouldn't have. Uh, so I'm going to want to watch watch this case play out a bit and see. But this this is um, this is troubling. I mean, I, I don't think that Flynn was paying enough attention here at a minimum. I love delicious meat. That's why I can tell you that I'm an Omaha Steaks fan. I've already gone through an entire Steaks family gift package on my own for me and Miss Molly. I've been cooking up a storm. Right now, you can give the gift of Omaha Steaks, and all you have to do is go to omahasteaks.com and enter promo code BUCK into the search bar, and then you'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package, originally $195, now only $49.99. When you order now, you'll get four tender top sirloin steaks, two premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha Steaks burgers, four snappy kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four perfectly brown potatoes au gratin, four made-from-scratch caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers free. All right, this limited-time package is only $49.99, but you got to go to omahasteaks.com, and you have to type BUCK, that's B-U-C-K in the search bar, to add the family gift package to your cart. I've already done it. I've eaten it. It is delicious. All right, don't wait. This offer ends soon. omahasteaks.com, type BUCK in the search bar today. The way that the Flynn investigation has been, in interview, has been carried out has come under a lot of criticism. In your view, should that have been happened, have handled any differently? How do you defend it from the criticism that this oh, interview didn't on. happen? Think of what's well. happened to the Republican Party. They're up here attacking the FBI's investigation of a guy who pled guilty to lying to the FBI. He should have been warned you shouldn't lie. He should have been told you can have a lawyer. Think of the state of affairs we've ended up in. That's nonsense. I'm very proud of the way the FBI conducted itself. Agile, flexible, thoughtful, pursued the leads where you'd want us to. I just wanted to return to this for a moment here because the the criticism of what the FBI did to Flynn is, in my opinion, rock solid. And Comey is a disgrace. And I feel almost like as an American, I've been violated knowing that James Comey has had as much authority in the United States government and the executive branch as he has for as long as he has, that James Comey was making investigative and in the case of Hillary, prosecutorial apparently decisions and prosecutorial decisions before that, when he was a a U.S. attorney, uh, that gives me the that gives me the creeps. 
This is not a this is not a person that should be given power. This is a person who's really drunk on his own self-righteousness and and is not fair-minded. He's not he's not a fair actor in this at all. And let me just say, you know, when he starts getting all huffy about how the FBI someone lied to the FBI, well, you know what? They they prosecuted Scooter Libby for lying about a conversation and that was Comey's good buddy Patrick Fitzgerald by the way. Uh, who was in in his own, he was the special counsel before. Notice notice a pattern here, folks. Republican administration and special counsel goes right to the heart of trying to take out one of the top uh, officials of the United States government, if not the president, the vice president. This doesn't, you know, we, we don't play the game as dirty as they do. No special counsel during the Obama years. No special counsel on Benghazi. No special counsel on Fast and Furious. No special counsel on the IRS targeting of conservatives. And these are all real things that happen. These are not crazy conspiracy theories like Russia collusion. But Comey's going to pull this crap. Say, oh, the FBI, he pleaded guilty. Yeah, people plead guilty all the time because they don't want to spend the rest of their life in prison. The fact pattern looks terrible for the FBI. Looks terrible for the DOJ about what happened here with Flynn. There was no reason to sit down and talk to him. None. It was based on a pretext. The Logan Act? Give me a, give me a break. It's a, this is like saying we need to sit down and talk to, talk to Flynn because of this email we got about aliens landing tomorrow. We wanted to ask if he knows about the aliens that are landing in the, in the spaceship. This is crap. But it was crap when they went after Scooter Libby. And that was also political targeting. And... You know, James Comey's buddy Fitzgerald was the one who pushed that thing through. And they, they tried to ruin a man's life over that. They were going to send him to prison. He was going to serve, I think, 18 months in federal prison. You know, do some real time for lying about a non-crime. Lying about some desk jockey who is running around pretending like she's an international super spy. So much a super spy that she was doing a cover shoot for Vanity Fair while this whole thing was going on. She's so worried about all the people that might have been exposed overseas because her name was exposed. Give me a break. Her husband's writing op-eds where he's supposed to be on some secret trip for the government. In the New York Times, he writes this op-ed on, I mean, it's just, these people have no ethics. I mean, this is part of the problem. This is why when they want to criticize the ethics on our side, I just say, you guys are a joke. They're a joke. We're going to listen to them. We're going to listen to Sanctacomi drone on about this stuff. I mean, you know, I think Flynn showed some bad judgment on some things. That all said, I'd take General Flynn over James Comey a hundred times and twice on Sunday. They have done so much here to break faith with the American people's conception of what our justice system is supposed to be. I mean, the, the damage that has been done to the DOJ, the damage that has been done to our perception that both sides of the political spectrum. And people say, oh, Buck, that's so weird. Why do you say that? No. The the establishment and the bureaucracy are one and the same. And the bureaucracy is now skewed toward the party of the state because the state, with big S, is always going to be the party of the bureaucracy. right? If you are a federal government stooge who's been doing this for 30 years and you're a senior government official, it is very likely... It is very likely you're going to be a, a Democrat and maybe even a progressive one. It's not true of everybody I know. I know there are conservative patriots listen to the show who've been working for the, you know, working for the 
Department of Agriculture or Department of whatever. But you know this. You don't need me to tell you because I remember when I was the CIA. You got to keep that conservative Republican stuff to yourself when you're in the government. Because the system is all about self-perpetuation and and this real separation between those who believe that the citizenry live and exist by their leave and those who think that they're supposed to be serving the citizens of this country. It's a very, very different uh, perception here. I mean, a lot of people, people like James Comey go into government service because they think that we need them to guide us. You see, James Comey thinks of himself as almost like a, a guardian angel of American ethics and morality and law. And that's how, that's how he, you know, that's how he is uh, able to sleep soundly at night. In reality, James Comey has made people like me trust the DOJ less than ever. And, you know, I'll tell you this, if I ever got into a, an issue with the federal government now, do I feel like as a conservative who's vocal, who's known, who is on record and who has has an audience, has a platform, has real sway in the conversation, do I think I'd be fairly treated by the DOJ? Nope, I do not. Did Dinesh D'Souza think he was fairly treated by the DOJ? Certainly not. Scooter Liberty, nope. I mean, you go down the list of all these people, all these conservatives. Where's the equivalent of their side? Where are the Democrats who have gotten rough stuff from the DOJ? Uh, you know, the, the ones who do deserve it and then some. But when it comes to judgment calls, when it comes to the gray area, our side conservatives always get the short end of the stick, and it's not an accident. It's Christmas Eve in L.A. California. Is Daddy coming home, Sue? Well, we'll see what Santa and Mommy can do, okay? And New York cop John McLean has come to see his wife. I missed you. Instead, he's going to have to save her. Sit down. Within this skyscraper high above the city, 12 terrorists have declared war. They're about to be taught a lesson in the real Okay, oh, we, we get the idea. That's right, the original Die Hard, everybody. That was the, uh, the, the official trailer for it. The greatest Christmas movie of all time. You know, we all make jokes about this. Conservatives love to talk about how Die Hard is the greatest Christmas movie. It's definitely my number one all-time action movie, but it is also just a fantastic movie in general. And yes, it does entirely take place on Christmas Eve. What other movie can you say that for? Um, now, there is this, uh, based on streaming data, and I sent this to John too, there is this state-by-state -state comparison of based on stream, so based on what people really want to watch, what is their favorite Christmas movie by state? And wow, are there some surprises on here. All right, let, let's just, John, I want to pass this to you. Of the, of the of the map of U.S. states, of all the movies that are favorites for that state for Christmas movies, which one did you find the most uh, surprising? I'm looking at New York State because I was interested to see what that is. I don't know what the apartment is. John, I couldn't agree with you more. I don't even know what the heck the apartment is. This is a Christmas movie that I've never heard of with the most boring name, The Apartment. I, I, I have to look this thing up. I don't even know. I was also, so so you get the prize, because I agree with you, man. I know you're in New York, and and I would have never guessed. I love, I know producer Mike is, is is cutting up some audio for the end of the show right now, but trading places for Pennsylvania, because it all takes place in Philly, I like that. I like that, that Pennsylvania gives trading places with Eddie Murphy 
all do love because it does take place in Philadelphia. So you have that. the the ones that the the, the ones that really surprised me though in terms of the amount of coverage. First of all, Die Hard is the favorite movie for Christmas of Washington State. What up, Washington? Woo! We're up. Uh, we're up on a Washington, a couple of Washington State stations, and also. Uh, Die Hard is the favorite of Wisconsin. Eh? What's up, Wisconsin? Uh, as well as Missouri. So Missouri, Washington State, and Wisconsin love Die Hard. And the one that surprised me, though, was that Batman Returns, the, the Tim Burton version of Batman, the second Tim Burton Batman movie, that's the number one in California and Florida. John, what do you think about that? I didn't see that one coming. Uh, is it a warm weather thing that... Uh... They they like that movie. No, it's it, that's a fair question. But I mean, our two two of our biggest, our number one state by population, I think number four, I think Florida is number four. Though I, I think Louisiana also is Batman Returns. Yeah, Louisiana is also in a Batman movie, which I, I find so. I don't even think of that as a Christmas movie, although it technically does have a whole Christmas snowing vibe. It's a very dark film, by the way. I remember seeing it. Remember the 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 penguin wants to like march all the children of Gotham into the into the icy sewer system. It was pretty, it's pretty rough. The Nightmare Before Christmas is uh is a movie that people like in the Southwest. Edward Scissorhands. A lot of Tim Burton movies. Yeah, a lot of Tim Burton movies. Who knew that Tim Burton had such a profound effect on Christmas movie fare? Everyone listening to the show right now, I think is like, what the heck? What about A Christmas Story? What about Miracle on 42nd Street? What about, you know, uh, go, go down all those classics, right? I mean, I, even, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the live action. I mean, none of that really seems to get much. Gremlins, another one. The entire Southeastern, like, SEC conference part of the country. Uh, you got, what is this, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, Alabama, all that is Gremlins country, which is a shock. Scrooged also makes some appearances on here. The only the only state, did I say country before? I meant state. The only state that has Elf as its number one is Kentucky, which I didn't realize that uh, there was so much love for, for, for the, the, the movie Elf. But uh, people like Elf in Kentucky, so there you go. And there's some, oh my gosh, Massachusetts. Love actually, Massachusetts. What are you? What are you doing to me? You know, there's so much to love about Massachusetts. Boston's a great town, great sports teams, great food, amazing history. What are you doing to me with Love Actually? Is I see the people who live in Boston who listen to this show are all like, "Fuck, Love Actually is garbage," and you know what? They're right because Love Actually is garbage, and I'm just glad that we can establish that. If producer Mike was here, I'd have him do a Philly accent for. Trading Places, because we know that Trading Places is act- Trading Places is a good movie. I would offer to you. I just walked in. G- hey, hey, you see the Trading Places? <laughs> we got this map. John can show you. Yeah. Trading Places, the number one film for Christmas for the for, uh, state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, man. I know that. It's actually part of it was filmed in the building my dad used to work. I loved that growing up. We used to always go down there and into that building and uh, in, the, in the lobby where uh, he goes rolling in on his car at Eddie Murphy. It's great. One of the one of the great one of the great Philly based it is movies. So it is it's an amazing movie. I mean, I think Rocky's still number one, but Trading Place sure. has got to be like top five. Absolutely, not I, including historical dramas with you know the founding fathers. Yeah, Rocky's definitely one, but Trading Places is strong too. There we go. 
It's spoken from Philadelphia Mike himself comes in. Yo, yo. Clutch. Team, we got roll call up next. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for roll call. Roll call time, everybody. It's Monday. I had a very fun weekend, I have to say. I, uh, uh, Miss Molly and I went to the uh, Kennedy Center. And I, I have to admit to you all, despite it may make me sound like something of a savage, I lived in D.C. for years before and never once made it to the Kennedy Center. This was my first ever Kennedy Center visit. Now, I've been more times than I can remember to the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, uh, to Avery Fisher Hall, to those kinds of venues, but never made it to the Kennedy Center. We had a lovely time. It was definitely a kind of a family fair event, I'd say. It was... It was Christmas music meant for families with kids and everything, but it was really nice. And the woman, I don't remember her name, who was the soloist, was incredible. They did a whole medley of the Christmas songs that you love to hate. But overall, I think it was uh, it was quite good, I have to be honest with you. I, I enjoyed it in the Kennedy Center. Obviously, a lot of fun stuff going on there. I'm going to have to take Miss Molly back. We'll have to make another run to the uh, Kennedy Center sometime soon. I enjoyed it. All right, your thoughts, not mine. Roll call time. Team is like, stop trespassing on our time, Buck. You get to talk for hours on end. Silence, you old windbag, you sexton. Ree writes, love your show, podcast listener in Europe. Mais oui, bien sûr. I don't know why I'd assume you're French. There's a lot of languages in Europe. Uh, when you have the Dersh on, could you ask him why he defended Jeffrey Epstein in the international sex trafficking case and why Alex Acosta gave Epstein a light sentence, please? Thank you. Acosta, I don't really care what his excuse might be. Uh, what he did, what he allowed to happen in the Epstein, Epstein case is just simply unconscionable. I, I don't remember if, if Dersh was, I guess he was involved somehow as, as as a lawyer for Epstein. And I'm sure Dersh would just say that everyone is entitled to the best counsel they can get. And in reality, that often turns into the best counsel they can afford and if you are a billionaire, you can afford the Dersh. So that would be how I would assume he would answer that. But nonetheless, uh, Tyler writes, just curious, Buck, what is your discount code for Black Rifle Coffee? Well, Tyler, the discount code is not really the thing. It's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Just go to that page. Guys, there's really great t-shirts there, a lot of stuff there. And the Black Rifle folks have been among the uh, biggest supporters of the Freedom Hut for a sponsor, uh, stalwart guys, awesome guys. So if you're looking to get a, you know, you know what it's really perfect for an office Christmas gift. If you want to hook somebody in your office up with a great Christmas present and you don't know that much about them and you don't want to spend a ton of money, you know, send them a Black Rifle coffee for you know a few months. Send them three months of Black Rifle coffee. Send them six months of Black Rifle coffee. I mean, there's. They drink coffee, I'm assuming. If you know that about them, you're in the office with them, then you're you're good to go. So just go to blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Let's push up some of those buys here going into the end of the holiday, or rather the holiday season. Richard writes, I do not care what kind of mood I'm in. When I hear your podcast, I smile ear to ear. Kudos to you, brother. Have an awesome week. You know, Richard, you just made my day. I really mean that. Thank you. It's I put a lot into this show every day. I show up sick, tired, 
angry, sad, you know, you name it. And I show up and try to do the best show I can every day. And I spend most of my day preparing for this show. So if it is something that you look forward to every day, man, then mission accomplished from my end and it makes it all worthwhile. So thank you so much. And, you know, you just made, you just made my day, maybe my week too. Josh, right? Shields high, Buck. It's my birthday. Big five, three. Thank you for combating the leftist evil. Keep the faith. Good wins in the end. Well, Josh, happy belated, my friend. I know this message came in over the weekend, but happy belated birthday to you. Uh, 53. You don't look, you don't look a day over 40, my friend. So thank you for uh, writing in, and I hope you had a great birthday, probably full of some delicious red meat and maybe some birthday cake, even of the glutinous variety. Don writes, could it be that the Flynn false statement is omission of facts during a conversation? False statement is ambiguous on items stated and items not stated. If I was National Security Advisor, I would hold back details about my phone calls with random FBI people. If asked about the content of the call, I would say this and that. When in doubt, compartmentalize information, right? Is he even allowed to disclose details? I think it's far more likely that Flynn omitted details rather than stated false details. Don, it's really tough to know. You know, Andy McCarthy did a very excellent rundown over the weekend on National Review of how he says, look, Flynn probably lied, but they definitely set him up to get him in a lie that didn't really matter. But but he thinks that Flynn probably did lie. And, you know, the reason for that is maybe he was a little embarrassed that he had already lied publicly and figured he could lie to some FBI guys. I'm just telling you what Andy said. And, and you hear Andy on this show regularly. You see him on Fox News regularly. You know, he's not some anti-Trump zealot at all. In fact, he agrees with me a lot more now than he used to about what a scam the special counsel has turned into with regard to the politics, right? I mean, it's a very political instrument. Andy was willing to withhold judgment on it, but he says now, sorry, you know, Flynn is out, Flynn is out there, uh, you know, in, getting the rough stuff from Team Mueller and the Office of Special Counsel is essentially a a scalp hunting expedition. That's really what it's turned into. It's not supposed to be that. It's a shame, but that's where it is. So, I, you know, I, I think, you're, Don, your theory about a lie of omission is possible. I think it more likely that Flynn probably just said something that he may be justified to himself as, oh, I'm, that's just my interpretation. You know, that's, that's my, how I think about what I said to uh, Ambassador Kizilyak. But with the transcript there, they're able to to snag him on on an inaccuracy. Lauren writes, I can't believe the FBI would allow agents to write 302s months after the fact. In nursing, we have a saying, if it isn't charted, it didn't happen. So if we failed to chart, which means enter info into the medical record during our shift, every intervention that we performed during our shift, we were legally liable for any lack of patient care or any patient harm even if, in fact, we had cared for the patient properly. I feel like the FBI, with as much power as they wield, should at least be as accountable as nurses. Lord, I think that's an excellent point. Totally agree with you. And yes, you, you, you are right. Um, and, and this is a very thoughtful post you are, you've written to me. Also, she wrote, maybe Lieutenant General Mike Flynn should just say the meeting wasn't documented, so it didn't happen. Boom! Lord is dropping the knowledge. Sorry, I didn't mean to yell in your ears, guys. I just realized that that probably went a little loud over the mic. I got to watch that. I move around quite a bit during radio, so if you ever hear things sounds like a bumping, don't worry, it's okay. If the Freedom Huts 
a rockin', you can come a knockin' because it just means that I'm moving around as I'm getting all animated and talking to you on the radio. Uh, n- nothing else going on in here, so you can you could always knock. I guess though, none of you technically really visit me at the Freedom Hut, which is probably for the best because it's it is a hut. It is it is small. Uh, Paul writes, Buck, if you've talked about this before, I missed it. Is Inspector General Horowitz a straight shooter? What is his rep around the alphabet soup agencies? Also, what the heck was wrong with your mic on Thursday? All that tapping sounded like you had Woody Woodpecker on for an interview. Paul, I'm sorry. I think what happened was I was moving around in the chair. It's funny. I didn't even know that that was going to be the next, some of you, that was going to be the next message we got to. But uh, some of you pointed out that there was some tapping, tap, tap, tappy uh, going on with uh, the microphone, tap, tap, And that was just me moving around a lot and bumping into the desk and bumping into the mic. And this is one of my radio skills that I, or you know, radio technique things that I have to work on is I'm used to TV where you have a lapel mic and you can just sort of just move around and do whatever you want. And I like to slouch. I like to lean over. I'm very, I try to be, uh, well, I probably should just sit up ramrod back straight, but I, I have some, some TV habits that uh, blend over and uh, that's probably not for the best, but that's what that tap tap was all about. Chris writes, Buck, love the show. Well, Chris, the show loves you. Please spend some time when you talk about perjury traps defining lying. Most people assume a willful misrepresentation of the truth and intent. In these cases, they include just being imprecise or even an honest mistake. We talk about this in your show, use the word lie, can confuse people, even muddle the message. Even Andy McCarthy uses the word lie when he means innocent mistakes being construed as lies, hopes this makes sense from Chris. You know, I think you raise an interesting point there. I mean, is it, when, when is a lie a lie? And people who chuckle at that notion, people who think that's such a funny question, uh, don't have a particularly sophisticated understanding of our legal system, of the statutes in play here, and just of, of truth in general. Uh, when is it a memory lapse? When is it a difference of interpretation? When is it material? A lie is supposed to be material for it to be a chargeable offense. So there's a lot of different ways that you can look at this problem, a lot of different ways to slice it. And uh, I think that we should continue to ask those questions. All right, team, that's going to be it from the Freedom Hut for today. I'm with you every day this week. We're going to close out the holiday season strong. So uh, please do join me here in the hut and uh, make sure you tell somebody at your at your Christmas gathering this year, like, hey, what, hey man, what, what shows you listen to? What podcasts are you downloading? Tell everybody you know, The Buck Sexton Show, that's the podcast they want to be in on. Until tomorrow, my friends, Shields High.